I'm Chris Stanzel with Empower Hour. And I'm Victoria Zamatello back this week for Empower Hour. <laughs> uh, so, and it's very good to have you back as well. We're going to be having a very interesting conversation today with Adam Christensen, who is running for the Florida's Congressional 3rd District on the Democratic ticket. Uh, I believe the primary is August 18th. Mm-hmm. And so he will be on to discuss his platform, his candidacy, and... Um, the current state of American politics um, and the division between both parties, which I think evident by any news headline in any newspaper in the United States is uh, increasingly getting wider. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I feel like we should lead with this. Um, If you live in the state of Florida, it is too late for you to register to vote for the primary. That's going to be on August 18th. But you you are not too late. You can still register to vote for the general election on November 3rd and 4th. Um, you should absolutely go and do that right now. You can do it for free. I know Instagram allows you to do it on their website, but also just Google register to vote in Florida. It's completely online. Takes two seconds. There's absolutely no reason not to. So yeah, see, this is this is a, a clever ploy um, the Florida government <laughs> called voter suppression. Uh, where they make it they, they make it very difficult for people to register to vote. You want to vote in primaries, you're going to have to register for one of the political parties months mm-hmm. ahead of time. And sometimes you might just get purged from the voter rolls anyway. So even that sometimes won't even matter. So, but yes, it, it is important that uh, people are still registering. And I think it's important that people are still being engaged in the political system, especially progressives. Because right now, I think... We are seeing the next few months, I believe, will will probably be a real deciding factor. Like, you know, uh, if you've ever taken like a political science or history class, you know, they usually talk about like, you know, the the crash of 29, the, you know, the, the, the 2008 financial crisis, you know, 2020 would be, I mean, 2020 is already going to be in there because of coronavirus. Everyone already knows it's going to be in the books. Mm-hmm. But I think it'll also be in the books of, if things go the wrong way, the, um, oh yeah, that, uh, that 10 year period where like America was a fascist country starting in 2020, um, you know, that long period of complete political divisiveness that ensued because of a Trump reelection or because of Trump winning reelection. Mm-hmm. And I think there are people out there who would argue that America has been a fascist country for a little while, because I, I will admit there some of the stuff that Trump is doing has been done before, has been done by people on both sides of the aisle. Um, But I get what you mean. Like 2020 is going to be a year for the books. And I feel like in our, in our six episodes so far, um, we've well established that. I suppose the question is, are we in a situation where someone could go between both parties, go between both ideologies, or have we simply reached a point where there is not enough shared cultural heritage, um, shared civic ideas that the country cannot function until one side is simply victorious politically and the other side is forced to adapt to the new uh, paradigm. Is there a way to go between both these both aisles at the moment, you know, uh, kind of a pragmatist, a, um, I shouldn't say centrist, but you know, the, the, the reaching across the aisle, shake, making hands, making deals, making compromises, um, kind of a staple of the early Obama years. 
is that still an ideology that can help us come together as a country and actually come up with practical solutions? Or is it simply an unrealistic, unattainable goal at the moment? What what do you think? Um, My take is the way you look at it right now, um, there are people who still try to do that. Like if you think, I think it was the end of 2019, could be early 2020. If it was, good Lord, it's been a long year. But there was a point where uh, back a couple months ago, Ellen DeGeneres went viral because she was at a football game or a hockey game or something. And she ended up sharing a suite with, I believe, the younger Bush. And she and him were just like hanging out for this for the entirety of this game, just chilling, like making jokes with each other. And there are paparazzi pictures of them laughing and having a good time. And there were many people after that night who came out and said, like, you guys are not on the same side of the aisle. You guys should not be friends. He has committed war crimes that you personally have actively spoke out against. War criminal. Exactly. There's absolutely no reason for you to be friends with this war criminal, especially since you profit off of speaking down on him. So I definitely think that there are people out there who have the right intentions and say like, oh, political views don't affect my personal relationships. But at the same time, political views at this point are getting to a space where it's not just political. It's moral issues that are being forced onto a political stage. Well, yeah, basically what we're talking about is politically disagreeing with somebody perhaps in the past was just a a differing of opinion but now Mm -hmm. it's if you are on one side and i am on the other you are morally bankrupt one way or the other if i'm a conservative looking at us um socially fiscally liberal person that is somebody who's morally bankrupt um Mm -hmm. they don't believe in the sanctity of life um they believe in total government subjugation and control of the people Uh, They don't believe in freedom. They don't believe in God. And, you know, obviously it goes both ways uh, in a lot, if you're taking it to its extremes. So how can you reasonably function? Now I would argue the current democratic party, as we know it, including Ellen, including the donor class to the democratic party, all those people, I mean, hot take, but I, I would argue that Ellen is on the same, she's on the same uh, class. She's the same class as, as George yes. Bush. She, she's got way more in common with him than she does with you or me, you or me way more, uh, fiscally. They have similar pro- I'm sure they have similar fiscal problems and social problems. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, you can even extend this to the whole JK Rowling thing as well about, you know, people that have lived a very privileged lifestyle, even if they didn't in, in the beginning. I mean, JK Rowling's lived a very privileged lifestyle for 20 years. At some point, I think you just, most people lose perspective. And I, I kind of agree with you on that one. The thing that interests me the most is that it always comes down to class. Uh, a progressive and a Republican can be friends as long as they're in the same like case in society. If it was, let's this is obviously an extreme example that would never happen, but say you're in the same room as one of the Bush presidents, you guys would never ever walk out of that room friends and it's not because of your political beliefs it's act it's because of your class it's because of your social standing 
Well, there's something to that. And I even think, which Bush would I be most likely to like? It would be Jeb because he seems like the most normal of all the, <laughs> the various Bushes. So he seems like the most, I mean, he's not, he's not. I mean, by today's standards, I guess he was a good governor, but uh, of Florida, but the standards are so low that, yeah. you know, it's kind of hard not to be a good governor by comparison. It's um, not hard to beat the current guy. <laughs> but, yeah, but you're right. I mean, I've got, you know, I know, I know plenty of people that, um, and that are very conservative uh, that I, you know, still get along with because, you know, we're on, like you said, the same class level. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's something to that. But of course, uh, cl- class, uh, class doesn't exist in America. We're, don't, didn't you know we're class of society? Uh, ah, okay, okay. I think I just learned that actually. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I mean, I think I, I honestly believe, like, from a from a media standpoint, uh, from a culture standpoint, since class is not really a framing tool in pretty much all mediums, something like Ellen doesn't make a lot of sense if you're not looking at it from a class perspective. If you're solely looking at it from our the classless society we are taught to believe America is. The Ellen thing doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. And that's, that's when it falls back to the political thing, because that is, that is the class structure that America wants us to have, if that makes sense. And I'll elaborate by saying we have a well-established two-party system that's been around since right about when, right, right about when George Washington's presidency ended. And The thing about our two-party system is that because we refuse to call ourselves what we are, which is a very class-based society, um, we have instead let political parties take the space where I think class is for other societies. And I think as a result, we ignore the fact that class is the real issue, but then we call policy the issue because we don't know how to define what the issue is. Well, ultimately, we're all just millionaires uh, waiting in the wings. Yes. We're not poor. We're not, we're barely middle class. We're millionaires waiting. We're pre-rich. Waiting. We're, that's a good way of putting it. We're pre-rich. <laughs> I'm a pre-rich person, but I am, I will be, I will be. I'll just wait. And so, because like what a brilliant system that is. To have mm-hmm. set up that you have everybody thinking that if they somehow, some way, follow all the rules, which is impossible for some groups to even do, because uh, some of those rules kind of require the rules, are, the rules are there to put certain people at a lower class. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there are some people that are just they're screwed. They're always going to be at the bottom of the class. As far as the if you're taking the American dream to its literal, natural conclusion, but mm-hmm. you know if you're uh, the right demographic, theoretically, right, right color, you should, if you're not rich, you have failed. Yes. You have failed the system. That's what yes. the system tells you. You have failed the system. And so if I, you know, I'm in my 40s or 50s and I'm a white guy and I just, I'm never, it never happened. I just, I'm not successful. Well, it couldn't have been my fault because I did all the things right. I followed all the rules. It has to be those darn immigrants. It's got to be somebody else. It's got to be somebody else's fault. And that's how you get an entire ideology that's kind of exactly. based around that. Yes. And that that's where I was going with that. The system that we have in place isn't meant to solve any kind of problem. It's meant to pit 
the poor against each other. This Mm -hmm. is 100% a class issue being disguised as a political issue because at the end of the day, while people our age or people at our class level will get into heated arguments. Like I have, I have straight up yelled at friends, family, coworkers, anyone in my life about my political beliefs at some point, which is an annoying quality of myself. But also that's, that's the way it is. Like debate is happening at our lower levels and violence is happening at our lower levels because of our class. Whereas people who are on two different sides of America for example, Ellen DeGeneres and whichever Bush it was, because they are in a different class than we are, they can put the petty political division aside and they're able to show that they are united for, they are united for one reason that they care about more than their own personal beliefs, and that is money. Well, with that, with that excellent manifesto, I think we're going to take a, a little bit of a break here. And uh, when we come back, Adam Christensen will be on. So we'll be right back. And for your Empower Minute, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 2020. About two days ago, I was walking up the steps of the Capitol when Representative Yoho um, suddenly turned a corner um, and he was accompanied by Representative Roger Williams and accosted me on the steps right here in front of our nation's Capitol. I was minding my own business, walking up um, the steps, and Representative Yoho put his finger in my face. He called me disgusting. He called me crazy. He called me out of my mind. Um, And he called me dangerous. And then he took a few more steps, and after I had recognized his, uh, after I had recognized his, his comments as rude, He walked away and said, I'm rude. You're calling me rude. I took a few steps ahead and I walked inside and cast my vote um, because my constituents send me here each and every day to fight for them and to make sure that they are able to keep a roof over their head, that they're able to feed their families, and that they're able to carry their lives with dignity. I walked back out and there were reporters in the front of the Capitol and in front of reporters, Representative Yoho called me and I quote, a fucking bitch. These are the words that Representative Yoho levied against a Congresswoman. The Congresswoman that not only represents New York's 14th Congressional District, but every Congresswoman and every woman in this country because all of us have had to deal with this in some form, some way, some shape, at some point in our lives. Well, we're back from the break, and we are now joined by Adam Christensen, who is running for Florida's third congressional district in the Democratic primary. Adam, how are you today? Doing good. I'm surviving. Life is, life is okay. How are well, you doing? In these times, surviving is usually the best you can do. So, um, so we're really excited to have you on. Um, if you could just kind of give the audience at home a, a little background on yourself, why you decided to run, kind of what you're hoping to accomplish. Yeah. So my name's Adam Christensen. Um, I am 26 years old. I've started a couple companies. The first one was right out of college, uh, basically drove across the country trying to look where the best place was to start one and ended up in Gainesville, Florida. 
um, had about $3,000 in my pocket from working at a summer camp and tried to start a company and ended up with about 68 cents after a month and a half and was like, oh boy, um, <laughs> survived. <laughs> uh, started another one about a year and a half later um, and uh, really got into this it really January, basically. So everybody else had been running for almost uh, half a year by the time that I actually jumped into it. And really the reason that I jumped into it was I knew that number one, this district was flippable. Um, every single thing that could possibly go right had. Uh, Ted Yoho was retiring. On top of that, um, Yvonne, who had run two years prior, had only raised $25,000. She didn't have a huge organizing base and she still got 43% of the vote. And then you also had the fact that, you know, felony disenfranchisement was going to be knocked down. You had a lot of, a lot of factors. So I looked at it and I said, you know, I'm going to go help whoever it is that's going to be running and winning the Democratic nomination. Like I'm going to go help them volunteer, whatever I need to do to try to get them elected. And I uh, went online and looked and I was like, well, <laughs> that's not promising. <laughs> Um, basically the other two people had never cracked 3% in the general election. They've run multiple times before. And at the same time, I just didn't see them being able to number one, build a movement. Number two, get people excited about what they were doing. And number three, they really were not speaking to anybody that I knew any of the issues that like the people, my friends, my family have experienced. And at my, in my, in my head, I was basically like, I, I was complaining, to be honest with you. I was complaining to a friend and they basically said, you know, you don't really get to complain if you're not going to do something about it. I was like, well, I don't know what I could possibly do about that. And then I kind of looked into it. And I was like, you know, what would it take to actually run and do this? Um, and basically it was, you get 5,000 signatures, you pay 10 grand. And I was like, well, I don't really have 10 grand just lying around. I don't think most people do. Um, so let's try for the signatures. And within about two weeks, I took the little Pomeranian Husky puppy out and we got about 600 signatures in two weeks. And I was like, wow, what we're actually talking about here is not only popular, but people want it and also they need it. Um, so at that point, I threw the bat signal out to people in the poli sci department. I threw it out to basically people at UF campus. And I was like, look, this is what we can run on and we can win this thing by doing it. And within a week, we had 10 people. Now we've got almost 50. And uh, basically, we have the largest campaign as far as people goes of Republican or Democrat. Um, we have the most individual donors on either side. We, we just crossed the thousand donor mark, which is phenomenal. Our average donation is about 15 bucks. And so what we decided to do is build a movement of people that basically said our lives have to get better and we're going to actually go do that um, because nobody else is going to come save us. And so that's, I mean, that's why I'm running. Well, I think the, the you gotta, gotta admit that Husky must be your secret weapon. Dude, I, I swear to you, probably half the people that came to talk to me was only because of the dog and they stayed because <laughs> of the dog. The ideas were great, but the puppy was the best part. Yeah, that's a, that's what brought him in. But no, that's I think that's excellent. I think there's this is definitely the time right now for for new ideas to bring um, energy, passion into the political um, arena right now. The first question I actually wanted to ask: um, You're running for Ted Yoho's seat. Have you ever met him? No, thank God I have not. Because <laughs> I probably would have said some very unpleasant things. No, I completely understand. I think all of us would at this point. <laughs> uh, what is your just take, especially on how he treated uh, AOC? I think that story dropped on July 21st. Um, uh, for 
listeners who don't know, uh, Ted Yoho got into a verbal altercation, we'll call it, on the Capitol steps uh, this past week, week before. And uh, during that process, at one point, uh, as he was walking away, he called her a fucking bitch, I believe. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, What is your take on that as someone who is running for his seat? Do you think... Do you think you will have a better chance at just getting along with more of our congressional members? Am I going to get in screaming matches on the Capitol steps is what you're asking, I think? You're definitely, you're not going to get into screaming matches on the Capitol steps. I think (laughs) Eddie, no one should be getting into screaming matches on the Capitol steps. But at the same time, uh, we're in a very divisive point within Congress, within the U.S., um, and you and AOC, if I, if I'm assuming correctly, uh, are basically same platform, same ideas. I see that you support the Green New Deal, uh, with other congressional members who aren't AOC, but are on the opposite side of the aisle. Do you think it's more about agreeing to disagree, or do you think it's more about standing up, uh, arguing, even if it might get ugly and pushing points, you know? That's a culture of disrespect. I mean, this from Ted Yoho is not new. We have to, we have to start there. This is not new behavior. Mm-hmm. The man voted against making lynching a federal crime. He doesn't yes. think the Civil yes. Rights Act is constitutional. He doesn't think the ERA should be passed. He doesn't think that there should be a Survivor's Bill of Rights. I mean, you name a single issue, he's been on the wrong side of history. He's voted with the largest companies in the world 100% of the time. He has voted to raise taxes on the middle class and raise expenses on the middle class 92% of the time. And so right there, you get into something that's a little bit deeper. But on top of that, you know, right after it happened, actually, I got called um, by a girl named Elsa. She is a former intern in Ted Yoho's office. And she basically said, look, I wrote this story. It was my experience. And, you know, when, when, when the story started to come out about children being separated from their parents, from their mothers, um, with, with what ICE was doing, I had, we had people calling our office, crying, mothers, grandmothers, people, crying. And Ted Yoho refused to say anything, and he wouldn't give us any direction on how we we're supposed to handle that. And when I went in to confront him, Mrs. Elsa, he said, don't believe everything that you see in the media. And so right there, that tells me that number one, he just doesn't give a shit about people. He cares about himself. And so if the question is, am I actually going to care about people and not be a complete, I mean, asshole, that's what he is. That is what he is. That is what he has shown himself to be for years. If the question is, am I actually going to care about whether people live or die and whether or not people can survive and whether or not poverty and crime actually are linked, then yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, those are some things that I would care about. Um, and I think on top of that, we need to understand that this kind of thing is happening all over Capitol Hill. It's happening all over the country. And until we actually stand up and say, look, this, number one, this isn't correct. And number two, we need to fight it. I don't think very much is going to change. And so what I really appreciate is, number one, she decided to write this op-ed. Uh, she decided to publish it with her own name, which I don't understand the amount of courage that that I'm sure took but I'm also sure there's a lot more people that number one have read it and number two have been in the same situation. Um, And she told me basically, she said, look, the reason I got this courage 
is because I saw AOC stand there and then respond in a way that made number one, me proud. And number two, me want to be able to live up to what she is doing. And so what I see from AOC, what I see from other people that are running across the country is they're just standing up and saying, these things have to change. We don't have a choice. We have to be better than this. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing the vitriol go against them and it's unwarranted. And I think, you know, right now we're all seeing who the actual people that are humans are and who the people are who just care about money and care about power. So let me kind of piggyback off of your question, Victoria. And that is, so in regards to Ted Yohu's comments and, and, and a lot of all the other awful things you've just listed for us that he's done. I think there's a, a theme that you can maybe argue to different degrees happens in both parties. And that is as we become more of a uh, depolarized nation, dehumanization becomes an important tool in order to enforce these boundaries between uh, political sides. Now, um, what I want to ask you is how do we address the true vileness, evilness, and complete disregard for human life that a lot of conservative policies, neoliberal policies have for American people from the people who are making them? Um, How do we still cooperate with these, these Congress people in Congress that, you know, like I said, on to, from my, from my vantage point support, like truly evil positions, um, but still be able to cooperate and, and, and work with these people on like a professional level. You show their hypocrisy for what it is. You got a bunch of pro-life people who claim to be pro-life, but they don't support making sure that kids don't go hungry. They don't support making sure that kids aren't locked in cages. They don't support actually making it so that the homeless have a home um, and that you can actually build a society that functions. I mean, at this point, you have to fight. And it's not even fighting back. You're really just using their values and their morals against them and showing that, number one, the things that they are claiming that they believe in, they don't believe in. Ted Yoho got knocked off the uh, board of a Christian charity. Um, that basically focuses on feeding the hungry. Number one, he should have been knocked off it a long time ago because his policies don't line up with that. But number two, when it actually became clear that the kind of person that he was wasn't somebody they wanted associated with their brand, with their organization, they removed him. Show these people for who they are. I will even, so I grew up in a very conservative household in Indiana, extremely red. <laughs> I mean, my grandfather, diehard Republicans. But the one thing that they believe is that neither party cares whether or not they live or die. And the reason they've aligned themselves with the Republican Party is, number one, because the Republican Party claims to be the party of faith, and they claim to be the party that wants you to have personal responsibility. And that's it. That's really the underlying issues for why a lot of people who, you know, are very nice individuals, they align themselves with the Republican Party. So what you have to do is, number one, show them that if you actually believe in the church and the message of Christ, the way that you are putting your policies does not line up with that because the church is supposed to care about the hungry, the needy, the sick, the poor, the downtrodden, the people who don't have political power, the people who have never had political power. If you look in the Bible, Jesus did not talk to the religious leaders of the day. He did not talk to the political leaders of the day. He spent his time with the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the people that nobody would associate with. And right now, if your policies don't line up 
with that, then you cannot call yourself a conservative Christian. And so for me, pointing out those facts blatantly and clearly to people that claim to be of faith, number one, it's powerful. And number two, if you're able to actually go back on them and say, look, unless you're actually willing to do these steps, you don't get to say that anymore. And it's hypocritical. And we will call you a hypocrite to your face, just like Jesus of Nazareth did in the Bible to the religious leaders of the day. If you got a problem with that, I got a couple Bible verses for you. So I've had some fun with that, and it's, uh, it's very, it, it works. I've I found that it works very well. I think what uh, I am also curious about is, because um, I feel like a lot of this kind of naming and shaming, so to speak, pointing out hypocrisy, this is something that w- is a great benefit during election time because you're able to you know, point out the hypocrisy of your op- op- opponent. I guess what I'm, al- what I'm also curious about is, so when you're actually elected, uh, and you are in Congress, how do you actually work with these people? Because you could argue 30 years ago, politically, there was much more of a broader spectrum. You know, there were, you know, kind of moderate Republicans and, and right, you know, further right Republicans and centrist. Now it's, it's, it's much more the super right. It's the right. death of the moderate. Yeah, basically, is basically what I'm trying to say. It's the death of the moderate. So how do you navigate between these two extremes in the sense of, you know, if you're somebody who, you know, is standing up for progressive ideals, you, know, you want to get the Green New Deal passed and the Republicans, uh, I, I'm not using this as like a solid example, but just saying like if the Republicans like, yeah, we'll pass the Green New Deal, but we have to like, um, you know, you know uh, profoundly curtail um, women's rights to abortion or something like that in order to get your Green New Deal. You know, you start coming into those kind of compromises. Now, I guess I want to ask you is, how do you think you navigate that river without also sacrificing your own morals and and ethics? If you're in that kind of situation, you've already lost. So what I mean by that is let's take, uh, let's take Obamacare. Let's take the ACA. What happened was Democrats thought, you know, we're pretty good negotiators, but yeah, we can negotiate with Republicans. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a Republican plan we're going to dumb it down. We're going to get rid of a public option and maybe, maybe they'll take it. My response is no. You should have started with socialized medicine, had things you were willing to give up and ended up at Medicare for all because you never start a negotiation on your back foot. You never start without things that, number one, your strongest position, and number two, things that you are willing to give up that look like compromises. Because once you give those up, they think, oh, Well, they came to my side. No, I didn't come to your side. I'm just smarter than you. And not a single Democrat has done that in almost any policy decision in the past 20 to 30 years. And so what I really think needs to happen, I've said this a lot, politicians themselves should not be saying the phrase defund the police. The activists should be saying, and they should be calling for it in the streets, pushing the agenda as far as they possibly can. So the politicians can come in, rephrase it slightly, look like the moderates, look like the compromisers and get the same policies done. And so that is the way that you actually approach these things. And right now we don't, number one, don't have smart politicians. And number two, we do not have good negotiators. And so the first thing that you do is you start with your strongest possible plan, including things you will never in a million years get. And then you give up those things. And then you look like it's a compromise while still shoving the entire Overton window as far as you possibly can. And so that is the way it needs to be approached. It has not been approached that way. 
So I definitely, I'm glad you brought up the Overton window. I think a lot of people would argue uh, with something like Obamacare, a lot of Democrats, uh, namely the blue dog Democrats at the time, they had, you know, their coalition, a lot of Democrats didn't want, um, even, even, even as a negotiating point, or even as a, um, yeah, like, like a bargaining chip, you know, start from your extreme position and then, find, you know, go to that middle. I don't even think they wanted to verbally say those things because it was so against, you know, their own ideals and the, you know, their, you know, their donors, mostly their donors ideas. So, I mean, you could argue a good chunk of the Democratic Party. Um, you know, we, like I said, everyone has a different perspective how much of the Democratic uh, Party is truly under the sway of the donors. I think it's a good chunk. So it, then it's kind of a, what I guess what I'm asking is, do you believe in uh, this idea of like the, the, the Democrat litmus test of like there are certain issues that we will not compromise on? Uh, because you could argue a, a lot of progressive uh, Congress, Congress people, senators that are going in right now are kind of facing the challenge of, well, we kind of have like uh, a, a near Republican majority in a lot of these. And then if you include a lot of the moderate Democrats or the corporate Democrats, vast majority. We really cannot pass anything unless we start voting on really watered down compromised bills. So for you personally, are there, are there certain issues, um, if you could just name a couple, that are like you would not be willing to compromise uh, on those issues? Uh, litmus tests for me, um, honestly, anything less than a public option, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely. Like we should start with socialized medicine. We should drop down Medicare for all. Um, and the lowest possible, worst possible deal that anyone should ever make is a public option, um, which also on top of that, you should consider removing the insurance companies completely from uh, the healthcare yeah. industry. So I think that that has to be a litmus test. Um, I think a Green New Deal is a litmus test in and of itself. We have to have a federal jobs guarantee. We have to be able to make sure that the planet is going to be livable in 20, 30 years. Like these are not, I mean, you call them litmus, litmus tests. I literally call them necessities. I mean, we don't have a choice. So it's, I, I don't know that at this point we have anything that could ever be considered a litmus test now. It's, are you going to be able to survive or aren't you? And if you fall somewhere on the other side, you don't get your stuff. <laughs> We're not going to take you seriously. So in hearing what you've been talking about, like I, I am a socialist and the things that you have been saying have been ringing true to me. Like I am someone who stands up for what I believe, but also like I believe in the socialized medicine. I believe in the, most of the things you've been talking about. As someone who's running on the Democrat ticket and as someone who I'm sure understands the danger of the two-party system and how it suppresses the, the ability for third-party candidates to successfully get elected, with that knowledge, would you do you consider yourself a Democrat running on the Democratic platform, or do you consider yourself more the long more along the lines of a Democratic socialist or so like a third party candidate? Social Democrat. Social yeah. Democrat. I consider myself to be a progressive in the vein of Teddy Roosevelt, which he was a progressive Republican. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget that. And what did he say? He said that the greatest basically the greatest enemy to the United States and whether or not we can actually have a free market or even a capitalist society is oligarchs, is trusts, is people like Rockefeller and JP Morgan. And he went to war against them because he said they were killing capitalism. 
And so for me, especially where we're running and where we're at, I mean, it's a plus eight Republican. But the one thing you can always get bipartisanship is on is the fact that right now, giant companies are trying to kill off our small towns. They are killing our family farms and they're basically consolidating everything to destroy the free market. And if you talk about the fact you want to save the free market, it doesn't matter what your policies are or what you would consider yourself if you ran in a different state, um, socialist, social democrat, it doesn't matter. What matters is what you're actually fighting for. And so for me, in all intents and purposes, I am a progressive in the debate of Teddy Roosevelt with a leaning towards the FDR style federal jobs guarantee and economic bill of rights. So that is, that is, that's how I'm running. That's pretty much who I am. So um, kind of building off of that, I'm curious about, so you mentioned fighting the oligarchs um, and I've noticed that's kind of, kind of seems to be a central theme in a lot of your, a lot of the stuff on your website as well is dealing with this 1%, uh, you know, uh, what does Bernie say? The, the, the top, you know, the two, the two tenths of 1%. So, how do you contend with, um, and we were kind of talking about this uh, before you came on, the, the culture? Because uh, it's, it's not just the, the 1% that I would say are the problem. I say we have a culture of wealth, a culture that venerates wealth and, and the accumulation of wealth. It's kind of like the, the end game of American society. Uh, Victoria, what was that word you used? Uh, everyone is uh, pre-rich. Everyone, yes. everyone's a, a rich person waiting in the wings. And I think a lot of the ways Americans look at themselves are we are the end goal to all of our lives. Most of our lives is, you know, I'm going to be a millionaire one day. That is the ultimate achievement to being an American for, I think, a lot of people. Uh, and so I would argue we kind of have a culture that is revolved around uh, the accumulation of wealth. The way I really approach this Whenever somebody says, you know, you uh, 50 years ago, you know, I bought my house for $14,000. And my response is, yeah, 50 years ago. Can't do that anymore. <laughs> I mean, being able to pull yourself up and create your own company and like actually becoming a millionaire, almost impossible now. And the reason is predatory companies. The reason is you literally have people and companies that the only reason they exist is to steal wealth out of your community. And so, especially when I'm talking to conservative Republicans or independents, I bring up what happened here. You had a company called Nestle that went in and they basically found a loophole to be able to extract as much water as they possibly could from the Santa Fe River. Now, if they had been able to do that, and if the town of High Springs hadn't stood up and stopped them, Nestle would have taken as much water as they wanted, the springs would have dried up, and the town of High Springs would have faded away and been gone. And my response to that is, why in the world would anyone ever defend a company or a person who wants to destroy your way of life? See, what I've found is you have to make politics personal and you have to make it emotional. That's something Republicans have done very well for a very long time is they've always, it doesn't, they have the worst policies. They have the, nothing actually to help people, but they pray on the emotion. And if they're able to brand things or able to market things so much better than Democrats or Republicans or Democrats or progressives have for years. And so right now, especially for the progressive movement, especially for the democratic movement, you have to make politics personal. 
you have to give them a foil. You have to give them an actual enemy that is the actual reason that they're not able to get ahead. Republicans for years have used immigration. They basically said that the poor are the reason that you can't get ahead, or the immigrant taking your job is the reason you can't get ahead. And my response is no. The reason that you can't actually afford your house without working for two jobs is because a company called Walmart came in. They knocked out all the family-owned businesses by artificially decreasing prices so that nobody could compete. And then they replaced your good paying jobs that paid $60,000 a year with ones that paid 24,000. And then they told you that the reason that you could not survive is because of somebody that, that is poorer than you. So my response to them is, instead of getting upset that somebody is, uh, you know, is, is getting unemployment uh, higher than, you know, if you were working, then the people who are working should be paid more. And the reason they're not is because you actually have people working to make sure that does not happen and then tell you the reason that it's not happening is because of somebody who's in your same class. And so that is a jump that Republicans right now are starting to make. You're even seeing it with people like Matt Gates. You're even starting to see it with people like Ted Cruz who are realizing that corporate Republicans do not have your best interest at heart. And so one thing I find very interesting is you see a lot of populists from the Republican side that are trying to make that switch. Uh, people uh, like the guy in Rising, uh, Sagar. He's trying yes, to make that yes. switch. He's not, I mean, not very many people are listening yet. But after this pandemic, a lot more are. Uh, we saw, especially after 2008 with Occupy Wall Street, we saw it, um, you know, with the Tea Party movement coming out of Occupy Wall Street in the 2008 bubble. Um, we're going to see it again. And the question is, who's going to win that battle? Who's actually going to be able to win people's hearts and minds, convince them that they have their best interests at heart, and can actually create policies or jobs that could actually make people's lives better? And if the Democratic Party does not do that, you will have the populist Republican side that will. And so for me, we have to do that now. So an interesting quote, uh, a lot of what we were going to talk about in today's episode was just the idea behind pragmatism. Uh, in doing my research for it, one of the most interesting ideas that I heard about was the I, the thesis of the method and a maxim behind pragmatism and how uh, pragmatists are supposed to ask themselves going into some form of conflict, what concrete practical difference would it make if my theory were true and its rival was false? And if there is no difference, there is no genuine disagreement and therefore no genuine problem. Uh, the question that I'm going to with that is, at the end of the day, if there is a progressive Republican movement that were to suddenly start, let's say Teddy Roosevelt were to be reincarnated and tries to get elected in the next election cycle, uh, does it matter if there is the Republican name behind a progressive movement? Or do you think it has to be a Democrat-led movement? Or do you think it could just be led by anyone? I think it depends on policy. I, did, I, I really think it depends on what they're actually going to achieve because we have seen political parties over the years shift. And this is something that, you know, a lot of people in bad faith, bad faith actors like try to use and say like, you know, Republicans were the ones that freed the slaves. And I mean, that's, that's we've seen that kind of an argument. My question is, is the Republican party dead already? 
and we just haven't realized it. I mean, you have Lindsey Graham who said before Donald Trump got elected, if we elect Donald Trump, the Republican Party is finished and we will deserve it. And so my question is, is the Republican Party in the form that we used to know still there? Or is it just only in name? And I personally think that it's only there in name. And you're seeing not only fractures in the Republican Party, but you're seeing an entire generation shift that says those people are not even Republicans and we will not back them. And the only other party at this moment that they have is the Democratic Party. I personally think that the Republican Party is not only going to splinter, but I also think that a farther left party is at some point going to spring out of this. I mean, you have the pendulum swinging back very quickly. The question is, how far does it swing? And as we know, the Democratic Party is already in most countries center right. And so what actually happens? That's my question. I don't know the answer to that. I'm excited to see what happens in the next five to 10 years. But I really do think that you are seeing a generation of people that are, 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 have grown up under the same conditions, the same corporatist mindset for 30, 40 years, and they're done. And their kids are even farther progressive than they ever were. And those kids are probably going to be even more progressive still. And so I'm excited to see what the future has to hold. And I think that we are hitting it at just the right time here in Gainesville, Florida, of all places, to be able to see that shift in real time. And so especially like our race right now is a microcosm of what is happening larger. The Republican side on our side has 11 people running for the Republican slot. They only need, the winner is only going to need to get 15 to 20% of the vote to get out of his primary, which means he can go as far right as he possibly wants to just to get that 20% and he's going to win his primary. The question is what happens in the general? Are the people going to think he's too far right? Or um, is the fact that an FSU graduate going out and making fun of the University of Florida by putting Vader or Gator bait signs out on people's lawns, is that too far? I don't know. I think it is, and uh, but we're going to find out in this election. So to kind of build on that, um, we're going to see some sort of economic populism dominate in the coming years, most likely in, po- in politics. So what is your opinion on, um, not, not to get too abstract, but um, there's a lot of conversation about post-capitalism. You know, we live in a post-capitalist society, meaning that there's a lot of Democrats that I think are, are kind of, um, even Bernie Sanders to an extent, that kind of have this, well, we're going to go back. We are trying to go back to the kind of FDR model of kind of like you said, jobs program. You know, gre- you know it's called the Green New Deal for a reason. Um, you know, kind of go back to these more old school FDR, you know, demo- or not democratic socialism, but more like social democracy kind of economy, more like a European model sort of economy. But what we're seeing on the horizon is, catastrophic climate change in our future that's going to really challenge the entire way capitalism uh, operates, a scarcity of resources, um, and of course, um, automation as well, which is, you know, something that's already shut, you know, eliminating jobs from tons, especially from major corporation businesses. I mean, I remember five years ago, the self-checkout was like this foreign concept, and now I use it at, pretty much in every store I go to, go in. So it's, this is something that's happening before I, I, so, I mean, in your opinion, how adaptable do you think kind of old models of capitalism, kind of, you know, the semi-socialist systems that we're trying to kind of replicate from Europe, from the FDR era, 
um, are and how much do you think we need a completely different way of looking at e economics that is new? It sounds like you're kind of getting into the, um, you know, the freedom dividend, the kind of Andrew Yang kind of automation kind of sequence kind of thing. That's definitely um, an aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I would agree to a point, I think, especially here. So in general, yes. Um, for our specific area, though, and obviously, you know, as like me trying to win an election kind of thing. The thing that we have to focus on is the fact that, you know, right now, because we have allowed multinational corporations to essentially take over every form of, uh, of manufacturing, we have shipped everything to a different country just because it was a couple cents cheaper in the margins. What we saw is that number one, we were not prepared for a pandemic. We, when we realized we needed to be able to have to make masks and PPE and everything in the United States, we weren't able to, and it took months. And in an emergency, you can't get that stuff from another country um, because they're needed. And so, um, especially one of the big arguments that you can make for this area is that you have to be making things in the United States. You have to be making them with manufacturers in the United States, and it's a matter of national security. You can really tie those two things together, especially to hit Republicans and independents and people who are very almost libertarian mindsetted. Um, and so you can make that push. Uh, number two, I think the consolidation that has happened has to be completely re just gotten away with um, the amount of monopolies we have in every single industry is killing any response that we could possibly have. So like with the pandemic, the reason we couldn't respond is you had what 15,000 different insurance companies to figure out whether or not you could get a test. Sorry, but you can't scale like that. Like every small business, every single startup knows that if you can't scale, you can't compete. And so you can almost make, the free market really capitalist argument for why these things should not be the way that they are. Um, as far as automation goes, you know, the world has always automated. It has always gotten more efficient. We have always gotten new technology and new things that have come in and have completely changed people's way of life. And so if we get to a point where I think it was keys who basically said that we should be at what four days a week or less uh, by this point um, in, in time, uh, just because of the amount of automation, but we actually are at more now. We are working longer hours. Um, and so I think that, you know, if we do get to that point where automation is taking everything, number one, that's a good thing, but we have to be able to deal with that. And so we have to make sure that number one, people's homes are taken care of. They can eat, they have the basics, they have the necessities. And then if they want to work in certain sectors or if they can't work in certain sectors, they are still able to survive. And so I really think that that at the end of the day, not a single person should be too poor to live. And I think that's where we have to focus first. And on top of that, if we make sure that that is the case, then we don't have to deal with the effects of a pandemic. And we don't have to deal with the full effects of climate change. Like we will actually be able to fix some of these things. Um, right now we can't. And we are seeing the effects of that with this pandemic on the way that we have set up our system because we have gutted it to the point where we literally can't respond to anything. And so the era of small government, it's been over. People didn't want to admit it, Republican or Democrat. They didn't want to admit it. They kept trying to play to this small government kind of thing. Didn't work, hasn't worked. And now we see the effects of that. So I don't know what's gonna happen. Um, I personally, especially right now with this pandemic, an emergency UBI of $2,000 a month like Spain has implemented. That is what our campaign is back. That is what I am backing because it's necessary. And then going forward as well, 
you know, we need to consider keeping it after the pandemic to be able to make sure that we can bridge the wealth gap. I think that UBI would be one of the biggest things to be able to bridge the wealth gap and actually make it so that people can survive. And I think that that is necessary to do. It's a big step. It's a bold step. But guess what? We don't have any other choice anymore. <laughs> We've tried everything else. So um, another quote I looked into earlier is that it reads, it is we who choose how the world is to be described. And that is one of the staples of pragmatism. And considering the role media and news plays in our lives today, do you think our reliance on biased news sources demands action on a political front? Or does it come down to personal preference or just personal action? You mean as far as deciphering uh, true or non-true like sources or yeah it, should the government have a responsibility at a certain point to step in and say on both sides this is not accurate and this is not accurate do we regulate or do we do we uh, combat fake news with regulation i think when it's dangerous i think uh, the same thing when it comes to public health we don't allow people to go out and and basically you know, say, we don't allow people to scream bomb in the middle of the airport. It's a public safety issue. You know, we don't allow people to go out and, and physically harm others uh, or, or yell things that would be detrimental to public health. Like we don't allow people to go do that and we debunk it. So the government plays a huge role. I mean, you can say, oh, it's good to wear a seatbelt, but until you actually make it mandatory, then nobody's actually going to do it and you're not going to save as many lives as you could. I think especially for news, and I've thought this for a long time, if you are going to call yourself news, you should not have paid advertising in your air, on your air, in your hour, period. If you're going to have the title of news, you should not have paid advertising. It should not be entertainment. It should be informative. It should be covered by the taxpayers. It should be the taxpayers either hour of the day or something. But things like Fox News, things like CNN News, like these are not news sources. They are entertainment sources based on what gets the most clicks. And so I think we need a fundamental reshift in what we actually allow to be called news and what we just allow to be 24-hour broadcasting. And so for me, I think one of the biggest things that we could do is say that, you know, for 23 hours a day, you get to show whatever you want. You get to make as much money as you possibly want. But for one hour a day, people get to be informed. And that one hour day gets to be called news. And your entire hour for that period of time is to inform the electorate so that we have a better, more well-informed electorate and we're actually able to make smart decisions. And so I think right now, especially with people like Fox News, Breitbart News, all these different things, I think that it is a misnomer. I think that it is deceitful. I think the fact that anyone gets to say, slap on the word news on the end of their segment is wrong. And I think that we should not allow that. I don't think we should be censoring speech, but I think there are other ways around it that nobody's just willing to do. So kind of uh, going off of this conversation about news and media, uh, there's obviously been a lot of sensationalized media coverage right now that's surrounding uh, the Black Lives Matter movement um, that's been really catching fire in the last few months. And obviously, what's going on in Seattle right now with a lot of the rioting. So I actually was kind of curious if you can kind of speak on that um, personally, um, kind of kind of how that's changing your direction uh, and campaign 
on what you want to actually do on a federal level to address issues of concerning police brutality and uh, militarization of the police. I like to talk about predatory systems. I like to talk about predatory companies. And one of the biggest ones right now is the private prison industry. It is basically everything set up in order to disenfranchise, especially minority black and brown people, um, and basically remove their right to vote, have a say in society. And on top of that, to punish poor people for being poor. I was arrested in Central Florida coaching a high school soccer game because somebody said that me and my assistant coach were trespassing. I had a police officer punch me in the nuts. I had him slam my face against the concrete and slap handcuffs on me and threaten to take me in front of 200 people. They had to get rid of the charges because uh, it was, I mean, they lied on the police report multiple times and there was nothing that we had done wrong and that I had done wrong. And I was not allowed to sue them or do anything simply because of qualified immunity. In the private prison that I spent a night in, basically it was designed to extract as much money as possible. It was designed to bring people who had already been there back and it was designed to perpetuate a cycle even for people who shouldn't have been in there. And so for me, seeing not only a system that affected me personally, because a lot of people don't understand things until it affects them personally, the fact that it that happened to me told me and tells me, and I already knew this mentally, but actually going through it, there are so many people, especially black and brown people, that are going through a system and have this system that are set up to disadvantage them, to take advantage of them, to take their money, and to keep them where they are in life and in society and then take away their voice. And so for me, especially the black lives matter movement, is just, it's people standing up and saying, this has happened for a very long time. Now we can actually document it and we can actually fight back against it happening anymore. Um, and you're also seeing a lot of people that, you know, are not minority are not black and Brown that are standing up and saying our neighbors are being affected by this. Our community is being affected by this and we have to say something. And so for me, it's been very powerful to watch, but I think the most important thing is murals don't matter. Changing a street sign doesn't matter unless you actually go in and fix the wound, stitch it up, clean it out, stop putting a bandaid over it to hide it and claim that it's going to get better until you actually go in and fix the actual system, the actual policies that allow it to keep going. Nothing will ever fundamentally change. And so I think a lot of people are trying to make that argument while others are still trying to put band-aids on it by painting murals and changing street signs. And I think the people you need to listen to are the ones that are actually going to fix the underlying causes. I actually had just one more uh, kind of open-ended uh, just question that's more of an advice situation uh you mentioned earlier and you mentioned on your campaign website that you were raised republican and you had a just there has obviously been a change at some point where you went from running for a republic you didn't run for a republican decision or position but you went from republican to running for a democrat seat as someone who knows people who are going through similar things uh people for the first time in a very long time are being faced with the fact that their political party could not be moral or could not be making moral decisions. And I think a lot of people are having a difficult conversation with themselves right now where they might end up doing the same thing you've done in the past, where they change their political opinions from officially formally Republican to officially 
Democrat. Um, and as someone who's gone through this experience, like, do you have advice for people? Do you have just any way to parlay with the fact that you could have lived your entire life and you're suddenly believe you're, you're suddenly losing belief in everything that you believed previously? I think for me, it was really about number one, I was raised to believe in people. I was raised to, you know, pe put people first. And, and at the end of the day, the way that I was raised is that you're supposed to love and care for people. And for me, when I could no longer morally support the choices that I saw going around in my church, in my family, in my party, in anything, when I realized that my actual morals and the beliefs and the things that I was raised on, the people who raised me up and taught me those things were no longer believing, for me, that was a shift. And that was a huge kick, uh, especially, you know, just mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, everything. And so for anyone who's actually experiencing that, I, and especially if you grew up in the church, there is a moral revival happening in left politics where people are starting to realize that the politics that they grew up with did not care about the things that the church was supposed to care about. And they are starting to realize the Democrats, number one, Democrats are not perfect. <laughs> we have corporate Democrats who are just as bad as corporate Republicans. Let's be honest here. But at the end of the day, what is the stated goal? The stated goal is to take care of people. What party actually is trying to, and not going to lie, nobody's perfect, but what, are, what party is actually actively saying that that's what they want to do? And so for me, you know, I am never going to vote, vote blue no matter who. I think that is absolutely ridiculous because I will never vote for the lesser of two evils because you will still be voting for something that is not correct. For me, it's about having moral clarity, moral purpose, and courage in your life or political life or whatever to actually stand up and say that these are the things that are right. These are the things that are wrong. And if my party or policies or politics don't match up with that, then I need to change. And I know there's a lot of people right now that are at that point. And so I would love it if they would join us. I would love it if they would stand up and say, these things are not correct and we have to fix things. And I think there's two generations now that are doing that. And I think it's amazing to watch and it's, I, it's historic. That's, that's what I think. Well, uh, yeah, thank you for that. Um, I think you make a very good point there and, but I do know you're busy, so we will uh, kind of wind down here. Um, if, is there any, you know, if you kind of want to just uh, tell the good people where they can find you, what they can do to contribute to the campaign. Uh, if you've sold them today, I think you've definitely sold a few people. So uh, where can the good people find you? Yeah, absolutely. So, our website is for the many, not just me.com. That's our slogan. That's everything. Um, that's really how we want to run everything, all of our policies, all of it. Um, if you want to send us an email to that website uh, in the, in the, uh, in the form, uh, we will get back to you. We have 50 people under the age of 26 now that are running this whole thing. We number one, know um, that <laughs> you have to be committed to be able to do this. We have to make a better world. We've got a lot of people that, know that this is what we have to do. And so we would love for you to join us. Phone bank, text bank. Uh, you know, if you have five bucks or something you could throw our way, that would be great. Uh, follow us on Twitter at AC for Congress 2020. 
um, our, our Facebook page go like that. Um, you know, we've got an Instagram as well, TikTok, all of this stuff. Um, but really, you know, even if you just wanted to make some content or, you know, make some pictures or some memes, we will literally take anything and, and, and make sure that it's to the quality that it needs to be so that we can further not only this movement, but go and flip this district. Because at the end of the day, if we don't actually flip the district, then we haven't accomplished anything. And so our game plan is actually to do that. Also, I have a huge announcement for Thursday. We got word that we will be announced by someone um, and it is going to not only shake up the primary completely, but the general election as well. Um, we've gotten a ton of national attention and we're about to get a ton more based on this endorsement. It's a former presidential candidate. So I'm going to be very excited to announce that then. Um, and yeah, that's coming out Thursday. Oh, Florida College Democrats also just endorsed us. So that's exciting. Um, and yeah, um, again, my name is Adam Christensen. Elections on August 18th and then November 3rd. Well, thank you so much. Once again, thank you so much for, for coming on. I think we had a really good conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate it, guys. All right. Well, with that, I think we're going to wind down here. So uh, I've been Chris Stanzel with Empower Hour. And I'm Victoria Zamatello. And we'll see you next time. Stay safe. Thoughts, questions, concerns, you want to tell us how much you like the show, you know where to go. Email us at host at empowerourradio.com.